everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. Today we're continuing our series called Understanding the Book of Revelation. Revelation teaches that there's a blessing in reading and responding to its message. But for many, the book is either filled with codes or confusion. And we miss Revelation's own focus on Jesus and his call to faithfulness as a result. Today we're looking at a tale of a pregnant woman and a baby-eating dragon. And it shows us a spiritual battle behind the circumstances of our lives and how we can thrive in the midst of it. I remember my dad taking me to the shoe store when I was in about grade three. I picked out a pair of shoes that were made of imitation denim. To a nerdy eight-year-old in the 70s, fake denim shoes were about the coolest things I owned. But there was something that made them even cooler. On the side of the shoes, there was a little smirking red face with horns. And under it read, the devil made me do it. Those shoes sent the message that Satan was the one who could add a little thrill to an otherwise boring eight-year-old kid's life. The devil wore denim, and I wanted to too. It was like an invitation to rebel. But there was another message to those shoes. Because the smiling devil was obviously a caricature. It was too stupid to actually believe. And the phrase, the devil made me do it, told me that Satan was just a dumb excuse that religious people used to avoid taking responsibility for their sins. I carried those thoughts with me right into adulthood. Long after the shoes wore out, I still believed what they had taught me about the devil. Months after I put my faith in Jesus, I was sitting in a cafe on a university campus when the man who was teaching me the Bible asked, do you believe in Satan? My mind flashed back to the shoes. That's a tough one for me, I replied. By that point, I believed in Jesus and I had confidence in the Bible, but it took more convincing for me to acknowledge the devil. Today, I'm convinced that that's just the way he likes it. If we can ignore him, then he's free to deceive, accuse, and condemn. If we don't know how he works in this world, it can feel like God's attacking and oppressing us. I don't know if you believe in the reality of Satan, but even if you do, chances are that you underestimate his influence in your life. Today's passage is intended to change that. Told as a wild tale of a pregnant mother and a baby-eating dragon, the vision of Revelation 12 teaches us about the spiritual struggle behind our physical circumstances and shows us the protection God provides and the weapons that he's given. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, click, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. Revelation 12, verses 1 to 14. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with a sun, with a moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and in the agony of birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. 
Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of God. Now, the first thing that we learn from this passage is that there's a spiritual struggle behind your physical circumstances. The deception, abuse, violence, and conflict we see in our world today is being fueled by evil spiritual beings. That's not to say that people aren't responsible, but Satan and his forces fuel the fire and orchestrate the carnage. There's a spiritual struggle behind your physical circumstances. Now, what this chapter does is begin by telling some familiar past events in wild fantasy images, and then uses those images to explain what we're going through now in our lives today. The passage begins with what verse one calls a great sign. There's a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, she has a crown of 12 stars. It's an amazing picture. If you've been with us in this series, you know the question you need to keep asking yourself in Revelation is, does any of this sound familiar? The book borrows images from earlier in the Bible to describe things. Here, the sun, moon, and stars remind us of Joseph's dream where God revealed to him the great plans that he had for his life and the prominence he would one day enjoy. It's not clear who she is or what she represents yet. So we read on in verse two, and we see that she's pregnant, but she's not pictured in a sundress with a proud baby bump. Instead, verse, verse two says this, she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. In verse five, we learn that she's about to give birth to the Messiah. The language of one who will rule the nations there is taken from a prophecy in Psalm two. She's giving birth to a king and a savior. And all of that sounds like good news, but verse three reveals a second sign. This sign isn't called great the way the first one was. In fact, as we read on, we realize this is a terrible sign. There's a dragon with seven heads and 10 horns with crowns on his heads. <laughs> They're meant to convey his power and authority. He's described as red, probably because he's covered in blood. In verse four, he has the power to sweep stars out of heaven, but that's not where his attention is focused. He's in the delivery room with a pregnant woman. He's pushed his way past the midwife and is standing in front of the woman as she's about to give birth. Verse four says, it's because he's intent on eating the baby. Who said the Bible's boring, right? Just when we think that the heir is going to die a hideous death, the scene ends in verses five and six with these words, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. 
And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. It's at this point now that we understand who is being described. When it says that she's being nourished in the wilderness for 1260 days, that has to be a reference to the people of God. We've seen image after image describing God's people facing persecution for three and a half years or 42 months or 1260 days. And that's what's going on here as well. The vision starts by highlighting the privileged position that God's people have. That's what the, the stars and the moon are, are describing there. It's almost like Joseph has uh, is returned and we picture his life, the hardship he went through, but uh, the prominence that he eventually enjoyed. Here, God's people are, are described uh, with, with that, but it starts with them suffering much. They faced much hardship under the Greeks and then the Romans, but all of that was ultimately, ultimately in preparation for the birth of the Messiah. As a baby, Jesus was hunted down by King Herod, and as an adult, the religious leaders plotted his death. His crucifixion seemed like the ultimate defeat, but just when the dragon thought he could devour him, God raised Jesus from the dead and installed him on his rightful throne. Verses seven to eight go on to describe a battle in heaven. It's not Satan versus God as people often imagine, but the archangel Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and his angels. It's picturing the spiritual battle behind the earthly events just described in verses one to six. The dragon and his angels are defeated. And verse eight says, there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, Satan no longer has any standing to accuse God's people. Because we've been pardoned, he has no case to mount against us in God's court. And so all he can do is wreak as much havoc as possible here on this earth. And he's intent on doing just that. Now, this story sounds like it's taken from the pages of The Hobbit or The Chronicles of Narnia. It uses fantastical imagery to make us feel the reality of the spiritual battle behind the physical circumstances that we face. God wants you to confront the reality of your true enemy. So let's be sure that we don't miss what he's teaching us about him. In verse 9, the dragon is called that ancient serpent. It's pointing back to the Garden of Eden and reminding us that the one who tempted Adam and Eve is still busy at work. He's a veteran tempter by now, so we need to be prepared for him. He's also called the devil and Satan. Devil means slanderer, Satan, one who, one who opposes. In the same verse, he's also called the deceiver. And in verse 10, the accuser of our brothers. Let those descriptions of his work and his character sink in. Do you ever wonder where those condemning thoughts come from? Do you wonder why it's so hard to do good in this world? Do you wonder why there's so many lives and so many people are so easily led astray? There's a spiritual battle going on, and it's naive to think that you can be neutral. Somehow in the busyness of our days, we need to open our eyes to the spiritual forces that threaten us and call upon God's strength and prayer. We need the shocking image of that blood-stained, baby-eating dragon to wake us up to Satan's reality in our world. 
Watch for his accusations. Look for his lies. And remember that he's defeated. God has dismissed the case he's brought against us. But having been thrown out of heaven's court, Satan keeps bringing up the charges against us to see if we'll give him a hearing. Remember that there's a spiritual struggle behind your physical circumstances. But next we need to learn that there's protection and nourishment in the wilderness. In this life, the people of God find themselves somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. We've been rescued, but we're not yet home. The good news though, is that God is with us. He provides protection and nourishment in the wilderness. Now, when we left off the story about the pregnant woman and the baby eating dragon in verse six, the woman had escaped to the wilderness. Given the powerful picture we'd seen of her in verse one, clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, we might've expected her path to be more problem-free. But the dragon is intent on pursuing her. In fact, verse 12 warns that he's furious because he knows that his time is short. He senses that time is running out. And so far from giving up, he comes at us with all he's got. In the, ver in the wilderness, verse six says, she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. The same message of comfort is repeated in verse 14. The lesson is we need to be aware of the dragon but we never need to fear him. We need to prepare for Satan's attacks, but we never need to dread them. God gives us strength as we wait on him. But notice where we find ourselves. God doesn't immediately carry us to the promised land. We're in the same place the Israelites were when they were rescued from Egypt. We're in the wilderness. We're not home yet. John needed to hear that. It explained why he was sitting in exile on an island instead of living the good life. He was still in the wilderness. The churches in Asia Minor needed to be reminded of that as well. It explained why they were struggling financially. It helped them understand why there was so much opposition to their faith. It made sense of the difficulties they dealt with. They were still in the wilderness. And maybe you've never quite understood that. Maybe you've thought that by trusting in Jesus, you'd be transported into a kind of heavenly plane. Maybe you thought that faith would mean no more trials and no more suffering. When Jesus came, he provided salvation. If you trusted, trusted in him, it's like he's rescued you from the slavery of Egypt. But before we get to the promised land, we have a journey to make through the wilderness. There's heat, trials, and temptations. But the wilderness is also where God provides for his people. That's why it talks of us being nourished by God in verses 6 and 14. Just as God provided manna in the desert, God meets us in the wilderness of our lives and ministers his word in our hearts to strengthen and sustain us. The wilderness can be a hard place, but it's also a place of protection. That's why it says in Deuteronomy 8.16, God fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. The wilderness is a place where we face tests and trials, but God's teaching us through them. He's humbling us and shaping us. He's forming character and faith and dependence in us. And his purpose in it all is to do us good. God's purifying the bride of Christ. 
He's trying to undo the effects of sin in our lives. The wilderness isn't always easy, but God meets us there. He feeds us and protects us. He shapes us and he matures us. So where does that leave us? Our eyes have been opened to a fierce and powerful dragon. There's a spiritual struggle behind our physical circumstances and Satan is trying to tear us down. Until Christ returns, we find ourselves in the wilderness. Life isn't easy in the desert, but God's with us and he feeds and sustains us. The dragon hasn't given up the hunt though. So in the middle of this story, we're told of three weapons that we've been given to overcome the dragon. We have weapons against Satan's influence in our lives. Verse 11 says this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Conquering by the blood of the Lamb. <laughs> that sounds like one of those things that Christians say, but nobody quite understands. Remember that Satan is the great accuser. If you're a believer, his case against you has been dismissed in the court of heaven. So he's here on earth throwing everything he can at you. He tempts you to sin, and when you do, the accusations begin. You call yourself a Christian? You're a hypocrite. If people find out what you're really like, they'll want nothing to do with you. You're a failure, and this whole experiment with following Jesus is a joke. Those kinds of accusations would undo you, but you conquer them by the blood of the Lamb. What that means is that for every accusation Satan brings, you can admit the sin. You face what you've done with reg regret, but then you bring it before God and receive the forgiveness he offers because Jesus died in your place. Conquering by the blood of the Lamb means memorizing verses like Romans 8.1. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means claiming promises like Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Christ's death for you is your shield against Satan's accusations. And you need to constantly apply it to the thoughts that would otherwise defeat you. The blood of lamb is our defense. But the word of our testimony is our offense. If Satan can't undo your faith, he'll do whatever he can to prevent you from sharing it. When verse 11 says that we have conquered him by the word of their testimony, it's saying that every time we tell people about Jesus, it loosens Satan's hold on this world. His lies are challenged by God's truth. The people he holds in darkness are exposed to God's light. And that's why you have those thoughts telling you to keep your faith to yourself. Don't say anything. You're not a very good Christian anyway. Don't mention Jesus. It'll be awkward. You're not very good at explaining things and you probably won't be able to answer their questions. Those are the voices of the enemy. Those are the lies and accusations that Satan sows. Don't listen to them. You conquer him every time you open your mouth to speak the name of Jesus. You conquer him every time you say what God has done for you. You conquer him every time you have the courage to share the hope you have in the gospel. Now, verse 11 ends with our motivation. It says, for they loved not their lives unto death. 
How do you threaten someone who knows that death is gain? How do you attack someone whose riches are in heaven? How do you discourage someone who lives with the hope of eternity? The way you face the challenges of the wilderness is with your eyes set on the promised land. When you live with the daily anticipation of all that God has prepared for those who love him, Satan is out of moves. There isn't anything else he can do to you. Now, Martin Luther is famous for his rediscovery of the grace of God. He was set free by the incredible message that we're saved by faith alone as a free gift of a loving God. But in the 10 years following his conversion, he faced the challenges of the wilderness. When he refused to renounce his teachings, he was excommunicated by the Pope and condemned as an outlaw by the Roman Emperor. At one point, it was made a crime in Germany to give Luther food or shelter. Anyone was allowed to kill Luther without legal consequences. Then in 1527, on top of everything else that he was dealing with, a pandemic reached Wittenberg, where he was serving. As it approached, many people fled the city. Countless people died. But Luther stayed, and he decided to write a song. He wrote a hymn that stays with us to this day. And the third stanza is a reflection on Revelation chapter 12. It goes like this. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. There's a spiritual struggle behind your physical circumstances. Ask for eyes to discern it. Don't be surprised that your life doesn't feel like heaven. We're in the wilderness now, but God is with us and we're on our way to the promised land. When the accusations come, face them with the blood of the lamb. If you've trusted in Jesus, you're covered by his death on your behalf. Don't let the dragon condemn you. Don't let the serpent accuse you. Instead, go on the offensive. Speak about Jesus. Share words of grace. Tell of your hope. And live with the fearlessness of someone for whom death means everything you've ever longed for. There's no loss for a Christian, only gain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminders and warnings of this spiritual struggle that we find ourselves in. This physical world is not all that there is. And you are not the only one that exists in this unseen spiritual world. Help us to be wary of the spiritual forces of darkness. Help us to recognize Satan's tactics in, his, in our lives. Help us to guard our thoughts and to be careful to discern Satan's voice and the condemnation, the accusation that would defeat or discourage us. Help us, Father, to take our stand in the blood of the Lamb. To remember that because of what Jesus did on the cross, the case against us was thrown out of the court of heaven. 
we stand pardoned, declared innocent for Jesus' sake. And one day we will meet you in heaven. We will appear in your presence and we will experience the fulfillment of all of our hope, all that our faith has been pointing to. Give us strength, Father, to, to pursue you and to seek the strength that you give in the wilderness. And give us the courage to make Christ known, to share the hope that we have, because our time is short. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you understand the message of the woman and the dragon and how to deal with the influence of Satan in this world and in your life. If it stirred up questions or you'd like to know more about a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. As always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.